Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to a new series of DNVGL Talks Energy. The first episode is part of a special series focusing on the impact of COVID-19 on the energy transition. We'll be speaking to guests over the next few weeks to explore how the energy industry, business and society are responding to the global pandemic and the role that policy, investment and technology is likely to play as the world seeks to recover. Our guest today is Dave Turk, Acting Deputy Executive Director and Head of the Strategic Initiatives Office at the IEA. Welcome, Dave. Thank you very much, Matthias. It's a pleasure to be with you, at least virtually, which is how these things go these days. That is absolutely right. And as I just said, uh, we are going to speak about the impact of COVID-19 on the energy transition. But uh, before we do this, it would be great, Dave, if you could give us a bit more background of yourself and your role in IEA. No, happy to do that, Matthias. So I've been at the IEA now for about four years or so. Held a variety of jobs. My most recent job is as acting deputy executive director of the agency. Uh, but it focused a lot of my time on uh, the energy transitions and what the IEA can do to help governments and other key decision makers around the world make smart decisions as they look to build their energy systems of the future. And uh, before uh, being with the IEA, I was with the U.S. government for many, many years in a variety of uh, capacities. So certainly have an appreciation of the different pressures on government decision makers. So Dave, we want to start with a personal question to get into the topic. We are all impacted by COVID-19. I myself, for example, have my family in Singapore and my work in Hamburg, and it's very difficult to commute. I would be interested, how is COVID-19 impacting yourself? Well, just as it's impacting you in unprecedented ways, it's uh, certainly impacting me in my personal life and in my work life. And uh, I think having that kind of unprecedented impact for people and societies around the world. On the professional front, what we've tried to do at the IEA is really push our analysts to really repurpose their analysis, to try to bring out real-time information to help inform decision-making. What's the latest numbers we're seeing in electricity or in the oil markets or in renewables? What are the key challenges for all of those technologies? Uh, how can we help provide that in, in real time? and really trying to do that rigorous analysis. So we're focused on the same issues that we were before the COVID-19 uh, economic uh, challenges and health challenges, but we're really ask ourselves the question on a daily basis, how is this gonna be relevant for decision makers right now? How can this impact real world decision-making for the better right now? And it really, it's causing us to sharpen up our analysis to make it more real time and then, of course, uh, instead of meetings and missions around the world, we're doing everything by video conference, uh, as everyone else is as well. So it's new modalities of working, which uh, are challenging, but it allows you to do these kinds of uh, podcasts or webinars or other kinds of things that can reach huge audiences around the world without everybody having to travel for a big conference. So there's certainly some opportunity to really reach a broader audience as well. Getting into IEA's work uh, on the global energy, you have just published the Global Energy Review in April 2020. And I, I picked up that you found some interesting statistics about the decline in energy demand uh, in, in countries with different restrictions. So, for example, countries in partial lockdown have an average of 18% decline in energy demand per week. 
and countries in full lockdown, even up to 25% decline in average, which, which is massive numbers. Could you explain in a bit more detail what trends you are currently seeing within the energy industry? Happy to do so. And the word that keeps coming up in all our reports and commentaries and analysis, and the one that I find myself, I suspect Matthias, maybe you as well, and others uh, of our listeners, uh, the word I keep using is unprecedented. These really are unprecedented times uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, and very much so in the uh, energy markets and the energy fuels and uh, other parts of the energy uh, systems around, around the world. And what we've been trying to do at the IEA is really make sure that all the data, all the analysis that they're putting together is as relevant as it can be for the challenges uh, that are facing decision makers uh, around the world. So part of that is putting together the latest real time, as real time as we possibly can information on what's actually happening out there in the real world in energy markets uh, around the world. And the project you mentioned, the Global Energy Review that came out just uh, very recently is an attempt to look at the first 100 days in 2000, what's happening uh, with energy markets in different countries and around the world, and what do those numbers look like under a set of reasonable assumptions, although it's very difficult <laughs> to know what's gonna happen next week, next month, given these dynamic times, but what could be the impact in 2020 in terms of some of these fuels, CO2 emissions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So just a few headlines. Oh, go ahead, Matthias. No, what just struck me on, on that point, the unprecedented kind of crisis, I, what I found interesting is that when it started, I think we all understood this will become something big, but I was surprised how surprised we were week by week, what impact it really had. So uh, from all the work you have done, is there some certainty or are you confident that we are now having the big picture right? Or do you think the risk is still quite big that there are surprises which we still can't see. So it's incredibly dynamic times and um, likely to remain dynamic for, for some period of time uh, going forward. And there's a, a, a huge amount of variables there, certainly the health issues, um, the spread of COVID, uh, the resurgence, uh, hopefully not very many uh, second spikes in countries, et cetera, et cetera, as we learn more and medical science uh, comes along and then ultimately hopefully as quickly as we can, having a vaccine uh, as well. But um, it, it is dynamic, it has been dynamic, and I think it will be dynamic and unprecedented. That said, certainly uh, what we feel from the IA side of things is our role is to try to, even though it's dynamic, even though it's unprecedented, what are the latest numbers out there in the real world? And uh, really push our experts to, to really give their judgment, their best sense of what's likely to happen, what are the contingencies, et cetera. So in our global energy review, um, what we found is on energy demand overall in quarter one, uh, we found a 3.8% drop. And under a reasonable set of assumptions, uh, that looks like it could be a 6% overall drop in energy demand globally uh, for 2020. Now, just to give you a sense of scale, that's about seven times the amount uh, of the drop in energy demand we saw at the last Great Recession in 2009. So this is a big deal on energy demand. And of course, the quarantine rules and uh, economic slowdowns, shutdowns around the world is, uh, of course, directly responsible for that. So oil demand, we predict uh, 9% drop for 2020. Coal demand, 8% uh, drop. Gas down, nuclear down a little bit less so. 
The one fuel that's the most resilient and will actually see some increase, not as big of an increase as would have been the case had we not had COVID, is renewables. Renewables is actually the most resilient fuel uh, that we found when we actually looked at the numbers with a slight, uh, slight uptick. And I think that definitely leads over to this discussion of the oil price, which we have seen to turn even negative because the demand has dried up so much, much less flights, much less transport and all these things, uh, which, which have a great impact there. The question I have there is for decades, we had this discussion about the price of energy when it came to renewables and how maybe fossil fuels were in the past cheaper and why therefore renewables don't develop so fast. But would you think that this drop in the fossil fuel prices has now an impact also on how renewables will develop further? Well, it's certainly good to look with specificity on what's happening in the oil markets around the world, something that we spend a lot of uh, time and have some of the best analysts certainly that I've ever worked with uh, on these issues. In fact, Just over the next couple of days, we'll be coming out with our next monthly oil uh, report. So we'll have the very latest numbers in there and a sense of what's likely to come over the next next few months and even beyond that, uh, beyond that as well. And it has been incredible to see not only the drop in oil price, but the dynamic nature of where it goes even on a daily or hourly basis, uh, up, down, uh, et cetera. And uh, we've seen some extraordinary efforts around the world to uh, to try to um, rationalize and try to bring some stability. So one thing we spent a lot of time, including and especially our executive director, Dr. Fatih Biral, was uh, to set up an extraordinary meeting of the G20 energy ministers on very short notice, really with the initiative of the IEA to try to bring together the key countries of the world, both on the producer side and the consumer side, uh, and really try to have some meeting of the mind in order to try to bring some more uh, stability in, into those uh, into the oil markets and to try to have that discussion and that common common purpose. So it's been dynamic and unprecedented in all sorts of ways, including the ways organizations and others like the IA are trying to work to uh, to try to be helpful to the cause here. So your question on the interplay on the oil side and renewables, certainly it's a marketplace out there. Now, governments set the rules around the world. Some have prices on carbon, some don't have prices on carbon or other kinds of means of greater stringency or less stringency. But it is a marketplace and certainly the cost and relative cost of uh, whether it's oil or gas or renewables or whatever fuels nuclear you're looking at is incredibly important in terms of you know where we expect to see increases uh, going forward along those lines. Two things I'd say uh, specifically on the renewable side is uh, renewable, certainly solar and wind, have seen such tremendous cost decreases over the last several years that renewables are much differently positioned for this recession than they were uh, even a decade ago in 2008 and 2009. And so the cost and price points are quite striking and quite different, frankly, than they were not too many years ago. And then the other thing we're seeing, uh, which I think is quite interesting, it's not only the relative price of different fuels, it's how predictable those prices will be or how predictable or stable those sources of uh, fuels are. And certainly renewables have shown themselves and proved themselves in a variety of contexts around the world and even being drawn upon in greater numbers because of the dispatch rules, et cetera, in a variety of societies. So uh, renewables are um, doing their part certainly to keep hospital lights on, keep us all teleworking, keep us all our kids teleschooling, at least when our kids are able to pay attention and teleschool, <laughs> which is a uh, which is a challenge, of course. 
so I mean, as you rightly mentioned, we have seen also in the past uh, renewables as a means of taking the volatility out of the energy prices. So big loads who had big consumptions have maybe taken them on themselves uh, so that they could predict uh, nicely um, how much they have to pay for the energy. So that was a big investment for them. And I tried to bridge over to big investments which have gone into oil and also bridging towards getting the economy running again after COVID-19. So there's a lot of assets out there who at the moment uh, create great losses. How will governments also with the different geopolitical interests steer this to kind of get this industry, the oil and gas industry up and running and to get these huge investments kind of pay off? So maybe useful to think about this is uh, three things going on simultaneously with regard to this this question. Obviously, many more than three things, which is why our real world is so um, dynamic and challenging to predict what's going to happen. But you have the, uh, the immediate health crisis facing countries and societies around the world and the imperative for governments to do the kinds of things that uh, are necessary to protect their populations, avoid the spread, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Secondly, you have the economic and jobs issues that countries are facing around the world in terms of people being let go, in terms of the economic recession, and absolutely a political imperative in those countries and those political leaders accountable in one way or another, whether in democracies or us otherwise, to their populace to uh, get their economies up and running again, to provide jobs, to provide the kinds of employment means that are necessary in, uh, in, in modern society. So that's the second kind of imperative. But you also have governments thinking about other key issues, including sustainability, including climate change, including uh, air pollution reductions we've seen around the world uh, as some of the economies have slowed down, uh, remarkable improvements in air quality. Uh, And hopefully that is something that will resonate and those uh, societies, those populaces will want, in addition to climate reductions, but air, air pollution reductions as well. So there's certainly a third priority uh, when it comes to energy about building towards the future, building towards the future energy sources, the sustainability, the security that governments will want to have and will want to have not only next year, two years, three years, four years, five years from now. And with the kinds of funding through these stimulus packages, literally trillions of dollars, trillions of euros, name your currency around the world, uh, that is a huge amount of money that could be with smart analysis, with politically real world grounded analysis, useful for the energy transition side of things. So we're spending a lot of time uh, at the IEA. We've got a special report coming out in the middle of June, really looking at those economic stimulus activities, which could have a a big impact in a positive sense on the uh, energy transition side of things, trying to quantify the number of jobs Uh, If you do retrofits of this kind or that kind for residential or commercial, or what kind of jobs are associated with different renewables uh, projects or other kinds of clean energy technologies. So we're trying to, at the IA, have rigorous analysis that helps inform those political decision makers as they try to deal with their health crisis, try to deal with their economic recovery, and all at the same time, try to build resilient, secure, affordable, and sustainable energy systems of the future. I would like to come back to resilience in a bit more detail in a minute, but you also just mentioned something 
about the reduced emissions. And I think in your own report, uh, you project an 8% fall in global emissions this year due to COVID-19. But uh, what would you think, in your opinion, will this pandemic have a positive long-term impact really on tackling climate change? Or is that just a little positive bump, so to say, in this on the storyline? So it is a remarkable drop, that 8% drop that we're predicting under a reasonable set of assumptions for the for the entirety of 2020 would bring emissions down 2.6 gigatons down to their level last seen 10 years ago. So that is a very significant uh, drop in overall global emissions. It's actually uh, six times larger than the drop we saw in the 2009 Great Recession. So a huge, huge drop. Now, this drop should not be, and our executive director has been very clear in the many times he's spoken about this. This is coming with human tragedy, with the health tragedy, with people losing their jobs, with kids going hungry in some societies, other kinds of social costs uh, at a huge, huge level. So um, that's not how we want and need to have certainly sustained drops, sustained reductions on emissions. We really need to have a well thought through energy transition, a structural uh, readjustment in terms of how energy is produced and consumed around the world to get us to those deep levels of reduction that uh, science tells us we need to get to, to avoid the worst consequences of climate change, the kinds of goals that are embedded in the Paris Agreement, sustainable development goals, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And what we've seen in the past, unfortunately, and again, looking back into the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, is we did see a drop. At that point, it was the 0.4 gigatons, so much smaller, as I said, than the 2.6 gigatons currently. But emissions came roaring back. As the economy came roaring back, emissions came roaring back. And there were some stimulus efforts there to try to move along the clean energy transitions, some efforts that actually helped really boost the cost reductions uh, that we've seen in solar, in wind and renewables that now we're benefiting from. So there was some smart policy certainly made at that point, but overall, uh, not enough to put emissions on a different trajectory. It really was, as you said, a, a little bit of a, a bloop downward, but then they came roaring back. So that's the uh, certainly the fundamental challenge, or at least one of the fundamental challenges and opportunities with all this stimulus funding, with all of these efforts to Try to be as smart as targeted about those funding, those efforts, uh, in order to try to uh, move our energy systems towards a more sustainable future going forward and to really put it in a different trajectory. That's going to require a lot of work, a lot of analysis, certainly from organizations like IEA, a lot of political leadership, et cetera, along those lines. But uh, there's certainly some opportunity here as well. Yeah, and if we look at this uh, same uh, issue from the perspective of consumer behavior, I mean, I think in this crisis, what is so uh, unique about it is that it is kind of affecting us all. And so suddenly we have stopped flying around. We have these digital meetings. We don't move around so much anymore. What do you think, uh, also looking at the aspect that we earlier said that Uh, the energy transition part of this is also saving energy or using less energy, that at least that part that consumers really change how they act in business, how they act in private life has an impact. So I think there's two things that's really quite interesting and we're, we're doing a, a lot of analysis this year. I think you hit the nail on the head in one of the most interesting areas of all this is the human behavioral changes. And, uh, and how sticky those changes will be when we're able to go back to the workplace or when we're able to fly safely internationally, 
et cetera. Will people uh, find that teleworking or a certain percentage of people find that teleworking actually has a lot of benefits? And so maybe they, some people switch to full teleworking. Maybe some people decide with their employers that, uh, boy, it'd be great to work from home two days a week and avoid the commute for those two days, especially if you have a longer commute and stuck in traffic or, or whatnot along those lines. How many people uh, flock back to the kind of international air travel that we saw previous to COVID-19 or are people a little bit more cautious or people uh, looking to do vacations near to their home as opposed to flying around uh, around the world. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see how sticky some of this uh, behavior is. And I, that will have uh, very big impacts on energy uh, in many, many ways. And certainly smart policymakers, mayors, other decision makers uh, looking at that can take that into account, can help channel some of those human behavioral aspects, again, to try to reorient different systems, whether it's urban design or other kinds of policies that can be done to to try to make some long-lasting structural benefits for everybody. The other thing um, that's related to this that I think has been quite instructive and insightful is this crisis has really caused, I think, a lot of us and a lot of decision makers around the world, companies, governments, et cetera, to think outside the box to think beyond their day-to-day that maybe they were in the mentality of. Um, This kind of crisis, the scale of crisis, which causes such disruption and impact on uh, so many daily lives around the world, uh, opens up the aperture, removes the blinders, or allows people to think a little bit more creatively or think outside the box in terms of what is actually possible. What is actually possible from a human behavioral perspective, but also what's actually possible from a government perspective as well. And we'll see how that plays out around countries around the world. Dave, I want to come back to this very important point of resilience uh, you mentioned earlier already. What has the pandemic taught us about the resilience of the global energy industry? And are there particular areas we should focus on strengthening now as we move towards recovery? So certainly resiliency more generally, I think, has been uh, underscored in all of our uh, systems, whether it's health systems, whether it's educational systems, social support systems, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly in the energy side, one area where we're spending a lot of uh, time and effort, um, including in some analysis we're actually undertaking right now that'll be coming out over the next few months, is on electricity. And we've seen electricity systems around the world, which are relied upon to power hospitals, to power clinics, to power all parts of the health infrastructure but also to power uh, our computers to allow us to have this chance to uh, to do this podcast with you, Matthias, to allow our kids to do teleschooling, um, even if they can't physically go into their schools. So electricity has shown itself to be incredibly important. And we already were going through uh, electrification and electricity increases in very significant ways uh, around the world. So the numbers are incredibly um, compelling in terms of how much electricity uh, is becoming even more important in societies. One, one data point for you from analysis we did last year looking at India. When we looked at uh, India, uh, which already has a very sizable uh, electricity grid, and looked ahead 20 years, again, under a set of assumptions, a reasonable set of assumptions, we forecast, if you will, that they could have an additional electricity grid the size of Europe put on top of their already sizable electricity grid in the Indian context. So obviously India is a fast growing economy, large population, growing middle class, et cetera, et cetera. But electricity and electrification, uh, electric vehicles, 
um, other kinds of applications, all the things we plug into the wall, our computers, our iPhones, et cetera, et cetera. So um, electricity has shown itself to be incredibly important, incredibly vital for modern, uh, modern societies. And uh, we're doing some analysis right now, looking at the resiliency of electricity, including and especially when it comes to cyber disruptions. So certainly cyber attacks or other kinds of uh, mischief that would be coming from the digitalization side of things. And I know Matthias, uh, looking at your bio, I think you spent quite a bit of time on some of these issues. And then also climate resilience. So how can our electricity systems and energy systems more generally be resilient to the changing climate, the changing weather patterns uh, around the world? So I think resilience is something that this crisis has underscored is absolutely critical in many, many parts of society and certainly in energy overall, and especially in the electricity side of the energy equation. Yeah, there was an interesting study from the German government about uh, long duration, large scale uh, power outages. And it is quite remarkable how fast societies start suffering when they are losing electricity or when they don't have access to electricity anymore. And that was actually a cyber scenario or cybersecurity scenario. There were some uh, thoughts of COVID-19 maybe also endangering the teams of running generators, those who generate the electricity. What would you think about this? Is there a risk that, for example, large generators go offline because their teams are kind of impacted by COVID-19? Well, this is where well-functioning governments and well-functioning regulators um, need to be thinking about all the risks facing their systems. And again, our analysis is trying to help inform that decision-making, um, especially by governments, but by companies and others as well. What we recommend time and again is uh, you've got to build resilience in by design. So you build it in square one in terms of the technology you use, in terms of the, the human resources, in terms of the design. Uh, you just have to think about it at all stages of the equation. Again, COVID-19 hopefully is making decision-makers, planners, aware that uh, there are risks, there are a variety of risks, and uh, it's not impossible to have a global epidemic that shuts down significant parts of the global economy. And you need to plan for that and you need to do the risk, uh, risk mitigation. And again, you need to plan for resiliency and by design so that you have those procedures in place if a certain percentage of your workforce uh, gets infected or if there's a cyber attack or if uh, there's climate disruption to certain of your key assets. So, Again, that's where rigorous analysis, uh, learning from each other, seeing what some countries are doing and what might work um, in a different context, maybe with some additional uh, tweaking or changes. So that's a lot of what we do at the IEA is uh, trying to really share those best practices and, and trying to think ahead and think, think in rigorous and smart and thoughtful ways. Dave, talking about the impact of COVID-19, it has great impact on every country, but there are certainly differences on how it impacts countries of the developed world and development countries, especially if we talk about the recovery of uh, from COVID-19. Well, that's absolutely right. And uh, each country, of course, around the world is situated very differently and is uh, not only um, seeing the health impacts differently, uh, the economic recession uh, impacts differently and the ability to uh, have the kinds of stimulus packages and recovery efforts uh, as well uh, around the world. So we deal with countries around the world. We're a global energy agency. We spend a lot of time with major emerging economies, with India, with uh, China, which is in its own, which is in its own category, Indonesia, South Africa. We're actually spending a lot of time 
uh, an increasing amount of time on Africa, including an Africa energy ministerial that we'll have at the end of June, bringing Africa decision makers together. And I think there's a, a special set of challenges on the economic recovery in those countries, and that certainly a lot of countries around the world don't have the ability to borrow, don't have the ability to do huge stimulus packages on par with the needs that they have to not only dig themselves out of the uh, challenging recessions that they're in, uh, but also to provide that development, to provide that uh, increasing middle class, et cetera, et cetera, along those lines. And there's a constellation of other international actors and decision makers that'll be very important here. Certainly the IMF, the World Bank, regional development banks, uh, bilateral donors, others as well. And we're certainly trying to partner with those organizations as well so that we can have the kinds of robust uh, economic recovery in countries around the world. And again, as we've talked about, um, really trying to have that be done with an eye towards the global energy systems of the future, less polluting, less CO2 emissions, bringing energy access around the world, et cetera, et cetera, all the social goods that energy can um, provide and trying to reduce those social harms that uh, sometimes comes along with certain energy, uh, energy sources. So there's a huge opportunity if we're smart and we can work together across the world to really have this economic recovery, but in a uh, sustainable, with a boost to sustainability around the world. It won't just happen. It'll require a lot of uh, leadership and a lot of collaboration uh, around the world. Dave, uh, looking at the time, I think we come, unfortunately, to our kind of last question already. And I think to kind of sum it up, I would like to know from you, which lessons do you think we can learn from this global response uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, also in order to transition faster together on other big issues we have to solve, like a clean energy future? Certainly uh, a lot of different lessons that can be drawn out of this, uh, as we talked about at the outset of this conversation, this unprecedented situation. I guess I would maybe uh, narrow down to three, three key lessons, at least I'm, I'm taking um, from it. One, and we've uh, talked about this uh, some, is really having decision makers, government decision makers, private sector decision makers, uh, NGO decision makers, think outside the box. I think the longer we're in our own respective jobs, there sometimes can be a sense of uh, this is how it's always worked. This is how it's always will work. And the possibility of big change is discounted or is just thought as uh, completely unlikely. And I think this kind of situation hopefully uh, causes all of us to step back and um, think creatively to think about big change, both big change that can happen in a positive sense and certainly to meet our energy transition goals, our CO2 reduction goals, we do need big structural change. Uh, the kind of change that, that won't just happen automatically, but government leadership, private sector leadership will absolutely be necessary. So I'm hopeful as a lesson learned is we can think outside the box, we can get out of our day-to-day -day email inbox and really look at the, uh, the different opportunities there are out there. And as you said, Matthias, one of those is the human behavioral aspect and how sticky some of that might be. So, so that's one, one key lesson learned, at least I'm taking, uh, taking away. Another key one is the importance of real-time information and real-time data. And we've, as I said at the outset with our Global Energy Review, really tried to push our kind of analysts and our experts uh, to the maximum to provide and to work with Uh, their data sources to really provide a source, uh, a sense of what's actually happening out in the real world. Uh, if you want to make sound decisions, you've got to know what's actually happening out there. 
uh, what kind of electricity reductions uh, are we seeing in different types of lockdown? What is happening in aviation? What is happening in road transport? What's happening in all sorts of parts of the energy spectrum? So I'm taking a big lesson learned is let's try to have that real-time information. And obviously, if you need to make estimates or do other kinds of ways to, uh, to, to do that, that can help. But sometimes timely, good, solid information is much better than perfect information that's two years old or three years old uh, in terms of real world decision making out there. And then the third thing, um, and I think we're seeing this already, and hopefully we can see this even more over the coming coming months. We've got a, a big clean energy transition summit that we're hosting on the 9th of July that'll be in virtual form with key decision makers in the energy space from around the world, um, trying to learn from each other. Different companies are going through similar challenges, different challenges. We all have different circumstances. But what we hope to do certainly at the IA, and I think this is a lesson learned, we're seeing it this certainly in the health crisis is, if country X is doing better in the health crisis, what lessons learned can be had there from a testing regime or from how they're responding uh, to the situation? Similarly, on the energy side and certainly on the energy transition side, I think there's a lot of lessons learned in real time that can be gleaned, shared, tailored for different government contexts. And uh, we spend an awful lot of time doing that at the IA. And I think that's a, uh, to me, that's certainly a key lesson learned from this whole uh, terrible crisis in front of us. Dave, many thanks for these very interesting insights. That was definitely a very interesting conversation to have with you. Thank you for making the time for this. And I would also like to thank our listeners for joining in. That was Dave Turk, the Acting Deputy Executive Director and Head of the Strategic Initiatives Office at the IEA. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.